Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Margaret Cho. She was saying, no, no, he just wants you to shit on him. That and more. But before that, I'm so excited to announce something that I'm actually announcing it earlier than I should be. TheStoryStudio.org, our sister company, we are revealing, we are debuting, we are premiering this week our brand new video lecture series, our online course called Intro to Storytelling. If you've ever taken a storytelling workshop, and if you've never taken a storytelling workshop, this is a must-have. There's about two hours of video here, lectures, there's a workbook that you download along with the workshop to like work on your stories as you're watching the course. There's five sample stories from people who have been on Risk before. There's also annotated stories, classics from Risk, with little annotations showing what the person is doing here and what they're doing there. I am your instructor, and I, I got to tell you, this is the most thorough, the most convenient, the cheapest way to take the ultimate storytelling workshop. I'm being completely sincere when I say that if I had taken a workshop before, I would still want to own the video course because it's so thorough and something that you can refer back to and pick at the many pieces of for a long, long time to come. I'm convinced that this is the best storytelling workshop package that you can get in the world today other than, you know, one-on-one -on -one training or being there in person. But even if you've been there in person, this is worth owning to have in your library. Now, like I said, it's a little early to be making this announcement because it's still being reviewed and published by the online company that's putting it up. So if you can't find it at thestorystudio.org, just write to me at kevin at risk-show.com because if you're hearing this episode on the day it was released or the day after it was released, it might not be up yet. The course is called Intro to Storytelling, Wow Your Crowd. The instructor is Kevin Allison, and it's at thestorystudio.org. Or you can write to me at kevin at risk-show.com. The other thing I wanted to say is... How great would it be if the post office was open 24-7? I mean, come on. Let's really consider this. No more limited hours. You could get your mailing and shipping done on your schedule, pal. Now you can. When you use stamps.com, you can print postage whenever you need it right from your desk. Stamps.com will save you the time and hassle of going to the post office. No more rushing there during your busy day. Of course not. Just use your computer and printer to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package, and then the mailman picks it up. You'll save money with Stamps.com, too. You get exact postage the instant you need it. No more overpaying, and you get special postage discounts you can't get at the post office. Have you ever gotten a discount at the post office come on we use stamps.com and we love it and right now you can use our promo code risk for this special offer it's a no risk trial plus a 110 dollars bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to 55 dollars free postage so don't wait go to stamps.com before you do anything else click on the microphone at the top of the home page and type in risk that's stamps.com 
Enter Risk. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Shay behind me now, and we're calling today's episode Meant for Each Other with a question mark. Sometimes we do that. Sometimes we throw a question mark in there at the end. We're tricky that way. I myself have been single for uh, five years now, and it's so confusing and mysterious and frustrating. You know, there's the side of me that loves living alone and being completely in my own universe. And there's the side of me that's, you know, 45 years old and kind of wanting someone to, you know, relax with someone to be a part of home other than donkey who is my cat if you don't know he's little white guy (laughs) i I mean he's a white furred cat (laughs) cat he's named donkey because i used to live on a street named under donk he's named after the street but you know the point is he's very affectionate but completely unable to discuss any episode of mad men with me And I am such an eccentric guy that I always wonder who is a right fit for me, you know, who, who, especially in this era of Grindr and Tinder, when the instant you have any little bit of baggage showing, a person's like, okay, who's next on this massive grid in my phone to choose from? So that's the murky mess that we dive into today. Stories of people looking for love in all the wrong places. and But of course, there's surprise turns because this is risk. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from one of our dear friends, Margaret Cho. It's been a long time since Margaret's been on the show. But before that, another one of our very favorite people, Dixie De La Tour. She told this one at the Risk slash body storytelling show in San Francisco a couple months ago. We call this one First Date. online dating, I'm not a Tinder or a perfect match kind of girl. I like Craigslist. I like that life. I like to be able to write some fucked up shit and get it, because that's, that's pretty powerful. 
But when I got an email in my inbox that offered me 30 days free of Match.com, I'm like, good, I'd never pay for that anyway, but I might as well see what's going on on there. So I put up a description and a picture, and I'm looking at everything around. It's all walks on the beach and sunsets and really doesn't feel like my people, but I'm like, uh-uh. So I just keep looking, and nobody's really responding to me. I'm not really sending it out, but I'm not getting it back either. As the free month is about to end, I get an email from a woman who says, I've looked at your profile. You and I seem to have a lot in common. I'm on here trying to make friends, and I just would really like to hang out with you. And I'm like, well, okay. That's, that's what you get on Match.com. I didn't know that. So I give her a call, we have a conversation, we don't actually have anything in common, I'm not sure where she got that from. <laughs> but she seems nice, and I tell her that, you know, she's like, we should get together. I'm like, tomorrow night, I'm going out to a bluegrass concert, and she says, well, let's do that. She gives me her address, I tell her I'll pick her up on the way, and I drive down to Polk Gulch, which is a kind of seedy neighborhood, if you know it. And she's in the one nice building in this kind of rough neighborhood. And she comes out. She looks like a version of me that's about 15, 20 years older. Crayola red hair. She's smaller than me, but she's, you know, had some work done. She's rivaling me. And um, she gets in the car, and she introduces herself. Her name is Dee Dee. And... Uh, we chat on the way. We end up in this bar listening to a bluegrass band and we're having red wine and get to know each other. And she tells me that she was a doctor's wife and that she got divorced about two years ago and he got all the friends in the divorce and she's been really lonely since then. She told me about a year ago she'd met a younger, much younger guy. So they lived together. She said, but about four months ago, he decided he wasn't attracted to me anymore. So he just stopped having sex with me. And I'm like, wait, you're paying all the bills and everything? Like, you're the sugar mama and he's nothing? And she's like, no, he's not attracted to me. So it's been a while since I've had sex. And I say, well, it's a good thing you live so close to the power exchange. And she says... What's the power exchange? And on my fourth glass of red wine, I say, it's the place we're going next. <laughs> For those of you who don't know the power exchange, it is a, well, at the time, it was a four-story sex dungeon. I'm not sure it's still four stories because it's changed locations, but it is a sex dungeon. It is a sex warehouse. Every floor has something different going on in it. It is massive. And you could pretty much go in till the very, very wee hours, almost sunrise, and get just about anything you're looking for in there. And so I tell her on the way what she's about to encounter, and I'm explaining, like, it's, you know, sex, there's BDSM, there's all kinds of activities. And she's just like, how do you know about this? <laughs> And I have to say, there's, a, there's two reasons. One is I was a Southern girl 
the only daughter with five brothers. I'm a little bit rebellious. The boys got different treatments, so I'm always like, I could do anything a man could do. I can walk into a sex dungeon, and often did. Right? I like these people over here. And the other reason is I love to play tour guide to weird shit. I love taking a brand new person in and walking them through and Dee Dee's on my arm and I'm just like, we, we go through, women get in free, so that worked out. And we walk in and I'm like, this is the rumpus room. This is the room where you can chat on a red velvet couch and have a Coke. There's a Coca-Cola machine for you. And there's a strip pole. So if you want to get on there and you know do a little dance, that's cool too. And I'm taking her through. This is the Frankenstein room. There's like, it's a comic book. It makes no sense. Some guy who thought comic books were cool created a sex club. So you go around the corner, there's Frankenstein, and then there's a leather sling that you can climb in and get fucked. And we go through the first floor and then we go downstairs into the dungeon. And it is all of these spaces where you can play, many of them behind hurricane fence. So you can just put your little fingers in the fence and peer through and watch God knows what. So we're, I'm showing her somebody sitting in a barber chair having their pussy eaten while somebody kneels at her feet and she's watching it and all these guys start coming up to us in short towels. <laughs> Almost entirely male. This is not that surprising. They're all wandering around in towels and they see two women by themselves in this club and they start pouring over to us like, hey, hey, hey. And I go to say, we're not interested. And as I do, I turn around, and Dee Dee's talking to a guy. And the guy she's talking to has got gold chains and tufts of hair, and he looks like he's about 19 years old. <laughs> got his hair slicked back with a lot of grease. I'm like, hey. And she comes back over, and she goes, this guy wants to go talk to me. I'm like, you should go on with him then if you want to. And she goes... I don't want to leave you here alone by yourself. <laughs> I'll be fine. So she wanders off with this guy, and I'm like, happy for her, you know? She seemed like she was down for some adventure, and she might be getting it. And so now I'm a single woman walking around by myself in a sex dungeon. And all the guys who were coming up going, hey, 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 are really coming up and going, hey, 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 Red, hey. And I'm getting a little bristly, you know? I end up in front of this scene. There's this master in front of this totally naked woman, and he's running a knife all over her, and she's making ooh and all noises. And I'm the only girl standing up against this hurricane fence. And all the guys are like, well, they're like making comments at me, and I'm just like, I'm gonna punch somebody in the face. <laughs> and this is guy a couple people down from me. And he starts making jokes about what's going on very quietly, very respectfully. But he's just like kind of running jokes about the knife and what we're watching. And I'm bristling at him too until I eventually he kind of cracks me up a little bit. He seems kind of clever. And he also seems like he's engaging with me, but he's not really hitting on me. And so we kinda, he kind of comes over and we're talking a little bit. And 
He introduces himself. His name is Alan. He's like tall, dark hair, very hairy chest, wearing a tiny little towel too. And uh, I'm starting to warm up to this dude. Not that long later, somebody who looks like a prospector from the Old West comes up to me. <laughs> and he stands in front of me and he waits for a break in the conversation. And I eventually go, yeah. And he goes, hey, guess what? I'm like, what? He goes, your friend's on TV. <laughs> My friend's on TV. He goes, yeah. And I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> Takes me a couple minutes to put it together, and then I go, oh, shit. And I grab Alan, the guy that I'm talking to, and I walk up to this wall of closed-circuit TVs that are behind fence. There's like 16 of them. And they're all showing the action that is going on on the other side of the wall from these TVs. I'm looking for my friend on TV, and I don't see her. All I see is a lot of men <laughs> looming over something. And I'm like, oh, shit. I go around the wall. I go into the room. There's like 60 guys in this room. And when I enter the room, they go, here's another one. And they start yanking at my clothes, and I start throwing punches. And Alan, the guy with me, goes, get your hands off her. And I'm just like, hmm, gallant man in a sex dungeon. i got to remember this. That is my flavor. I start trying to push through to look for my new friend. And it's a very packed room. In the center of it, which I can't see, but I already know, is there is a leather, giant king-size leather bed. I want you all to go back to grade school. Do you remember that video they showed you in health class of nine million sperms all going after the same egg? Well, Dee Dee is the egg. When she'd explained to me, you know, I really like this kind of music and I like this book, this was not discussed. <laughs> I start pushing through and as I get closer to her, I see this behavior I cannot believe, which is the guy who is fucking her is fucking away and every, every other egg is just kind of gyrating in that way they do like... It's going to come available soon. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. And, but they don't want to touch the guy in front of them. So they're like, oh, I want it. Oh, better back up. Oh, I want it. They're all like moving in this way. And as the guy who's fucking her starts taking shorter strokes, the other guys are like, oh, here, here it comes. Here's my opportunity. Here's my opportunity. Here it comes. And he's trying, to pull, he's trying to back up when he's done, but he can't because... So they're all like, somebody lands in again. The other guy kind of wants... And the other guys are like, okay, stop vibrating so much. We're, our turn's next, our turn's next. I'm freaked out. And I make my way around. Surprisingly, her mouth is available to speak to me. And I come up next to her and I go... Hey, Dee Dee, how you doing? 
she's talking, but like this is going on, so it's like constantly moving. She's like, I am so good. Really? This is good. This is what you want. She goes, this is fucking awesome. (laughs) Alan's kind of standing next to me and he's looking at me like, this is your friend? And I'm like... (laughs) I'm like, everything here is cool. This is what you want to happen. And she nods her head as she's getting pounded away. Got... I don't know what number we're on, because I came in late. But this guy is starting to give the shorter. He's, I pause for a minute to watch him depart, the next one arrive, and say, so, do you want me to stay here? Do you want me to take care of you? Do you need anything? And she's like, I don't need a thing. And I'm like, so I'll tell you what, I'm gonna go upstairs and talk to this man I just met, and I'm gonna take your glasses and your purse so you don't get robbed while you're gang banked. She's like, that was a good idea. I gather together her belongings other than her clothes and I start pushing my way through and Alan is right behind me and we get out of the room and we're looking at each other in shock going, did that actually just happen? I'm like, let's go upstairs to the rumpus room and have a little conversation and a (laughs) Coca-Cola. So we end up upstairs. We're at a a high table that's got like three bar stools. We're saving one for her. (laughs) Put her stuff on it. And he and I start having a conversation. He is a lovely man who's about to move to Germany. He is intelligent. He's well-read. We are having a non-sexual conversation in a sex club while every once in a while a group of men will walk up and go, love to play with the pretty lady. And I'd go, get the fuck away from me. (laughs) And we talk for hours. And after all those hours, eventually we see Dee Dee come through the doorway of this very long room. She's walking all the way over to our table. And she is walking like she's been riding a horse for a couple of months. When she gets over, she goes to the stool that's available for her. When she sits down, she goes, oh! (laughs) I try not to laugh. (laughs) I'm like, how are you? She's like, I'm good. She's either sheepish or she's tired. Or she's, she's just like, uh, I'm good. I'm like, so what was your grand total? She's like, grand total of what? I'm like, of the guys who fucked you downstairs in the gangbang. And she says, uh, three. <laughs> I'm like, you fucked three while I was in the room. And it's been a while. So she goes, I don't, I don't really know. She, she's not really into debriefing on it. So she sits there and I continue talking to Alan for a little while. And uh, at a certain point she breaks in and she goes, Dixie, I'm really tired. I was wondering if you could take me home now. And I'm like, 
So you know how you're having a really good time down there? I'm having a really good time right now. And I am going to take you home, but I'm just not ready to leave just this minute. Jesus, okay. About a minute or two later, one of the guys walks by that she recognizes from the gangbang. <laughs> and she goes, hey! And he looks up. Yes. Comes over to the table and she goes, do you have a car? <laughs> yes. Would you take me home? And he goes, well, I don't know. Where do you live? I'm like, you just gangbanged her. You drive her to Sebastopol if she needs it. <laughs> And I frighten him. <laughs> he agrees to take her home. So she stands up, kind of moving in the same ginger way. And she says, Dixie, I had a lovely time with you this evening. Thank you so much. Um, and I'm like, it was also nice to meet you, Dee Dee. And she disappeared through the door of the rumpus room at the sex club, and I never saw her again. <laughs> However, that man I met that night in the power exchange, Alan, is a friend after many years. So it didn't come out as expected, but I think that month on Match.com worked out after all. When I was very young, I worked at a lesbian S&M leather collective called Stormy Leather. It was a very, very kind of homegrown institution. I helped sort of set up their retail shop, and I worked their retail shop for a long time. And there was a guy that would come in regularly asking after one of the other girls. He had alopecia, so he had no hair, no eyelashes or eyebrows or anything. So he always looked very smooth to me. He's a very smooth man, and he had sort of a smooth, charming personality, and he was obsessed with being hit in the face with a pie. It was like always like chocolate pies. Like he just wanted women to throw pies at him. And I remember, I think one of my younger uh, girlfriends, she was just a young girl then too. Her name's Ebby Parker. She pied him, and he was always trying to get me to pie him, and then trying to get one of the other women I was working with, always trying to get her to pie him. He just wanted to be pied and he made a lot of pie puns. I'm fit to be pied. All, all sorts of puns like that. And, you know, everybody thought it was amusing and fun, except for the woman that he was pursuing at the store because she was also a professional dominatrix and she knew what he was really after. She was saying, no, no, he just wants you to shit on him. He sort of used the pie as sort of a metaphor for shit that he was definitely, he was a scat. He was in a scat. That was the first experience that I'd had with scat. I didn't really know anything about it. And I, I guess the mess was enough for him, you know, that it was metaphorically what he wanted. And I think um, a lot of fetishism is that. It's just sort of a metaphorical, like a wish that kind of gets buried and then reemerges as a different kind of a desire. I d remember that guy very clearly. And I always think about if he ever sort of gave it up. But he used to put up little ads and like, alternative weeklies in San Francisco and, and he wanted women to pie him and then he would sort of be at events or rock shows or whatever and you know, have a sort of a little square of 
plastic down on the floor and, and women would come up and pie him. It was all very fun and sweet. And then you realize, actually, no, this is, this is something else. I've seen some very strange forms of sexuality. Um, the strangest was at an S&M club in North Hollywood, of all places. And it's a very interesting guy. He was quite attractive. He was probably in his mid-50s. He wore kilts. And um, he was pretty dashing. You know, he had a kind of a handlebar mustache. I mean, in 92, 93, I mean, this is very, very ahead of his time. You know, he was very ahead of his time. And he also owned a yacht. I liked him. I thought he was cool. He's much too old for me. But uh, I remember going into the club and meeting him there. And he had rigged a veterinarian surgical tool, which is something used to suck out fluids from um, veterinary surgery. He had rigged it up to a glass, like a cake dome. I don't know how he did it, but he, he, he did it. And then he had put it on his penis and testicles and enlarged over several, several hours of doing this, enlarged his penis to the size of a human head. I mean, it really was the size of a human head. It looked like a basketball. It, looks like, it looked like it was holding a basketball between his hands as he sat down. But it was not a basketball. It was his penis. You know, you would just sit with him, and he would get very high off of the fact that he had enlarged his penis to that size. And I don't know if it was erotic or if it was... I don't know. I mean, it, it, he did seem altered. He was a guy that was not... Um, not a drinker, not a drug user in any way, but his eyes were glazed. Uh, he was definitely under a sort of a trance of some kind. And so I remember thinking, wow, I don't know if, how are you going to get off? And then, you know, I was like, well, sh are we going to, should we fuck or, <laughs> and he's like, well, no, I don't think that it can get in because it's too spongy. It's not actually going to, it's too soft. It, it, you know, it's big, but it's not actually going to go in. And I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> After a time, I, I, I didn't see him around anymore, but uh, I always remember him and I always think fondly of him and I think, wow, you know, that's really creative and it shows the potential of sexuality and the, the bounds of, of sexuality and the different things that you can do if you are inventive. The most gratifying thing that happened was I remember that, that North Hollywood dungeon unfortunately caught on fire and a good portion of it burned down. When it burned, I immediately donated $500 for the rebuild. And this was in the 90s. This was way before any kind of GoFundMe, crowdfunding, Kickstarter, anything like that. So they had no sense of, you know, that people would pay for it. And I pitched in and after following my suit, all the all these bottoms pitched in. <laughs> and then um, I spoke to the, the dungeon owner. She was so overjoyed and, and she could not believe the generosity of people. And she just wept. And I thought that was the most gratifying and beautiful thing. That all these bottoms got together to rebuild the dungeon. <laughs> it's fascinating. Sexuality is just a journey. And that you're never actually there. You never reach your destination. You know, and that's what's beautiful about it, is that you can continue to take side roads and rediscover more. The most sex I've had is not penetrative. It's actually in the mind and, and less about the body than anybody imagines. And I sort of think kink is a lot closer to a kind of a meditation 
than it is a physical act. It's a transcendental state. That that's what I've seen. And you know, when people get into subspace and stuff like that, it's it's very interesting. Like I never found it as sexy as it was emotionally gratifying. And kink is really phenomenal because it's actually it's a small word for a very very big world, you know. And th- there's so many things that it covers, and they're all so different, almost all unrelated, only in that they differ from what we sort of view as sexuality. But it's all sexuality. It's all good. This is Risk. This is My Dear behind me now. That's D-E-E-R. And we just heard from one of our very favorites, one of our heroes, Margaret Cho. Margaret once did the live show of Risk, but for legal reasons. We couldn't put it on the podcast, but my gosh, that was one of the most magical moments in our history. She just blew everyone away. So we have to have Margaret on the live show again. But you can find her, of course, at margaretshow.com. Her podcast is called Monsters of Talk, and she's soon to be doing dates in London. So check her website to find out more. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the wonderful Tyler Green, who is the co-host of the podcast general admission he co-hosts it with don hall it comes out of wbez in chicago i've been on general admission it was just a real treat they dig into the arts with various guests and uh, they've had a lot of great guests when tyler tells his story it'll be one of the rare times that we do the half radio half live sort of story so um look for that pretty soon But before that, we're going to hear from Al Jackson, comedian Al Jackson. You can find him at aljacksonlive.com. He told this one at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. We do it every fourth Thursday of the month at the Nerdist showroom. Here he is now, Al Jackson, with a story we call Blind Drunk.
Uh, I'm a little weird about this. This could go either way. Uh, how y'all doing? Yeah. Okay, good. Let's keep it nice and quiet. I like that. Uh, I'll just start the story where it ends. Um, this ends up on YouTube. It's on YouTube right now. And this happened like 13 years ago. So I, I feel like, because I wanted to tell the story, but I was like, I can't tell the story without kind of leading into like the players that are involved in the story. So I started where it starts. I went to graduate school in Miami, uh, 305 in the fucking house. Yeah. Uh, lived in Miami. And the re- this is like pre-social media and pre-like Twitter, even Facebook. Well, you could just go out and get fucking blackout drunk and no one would take a picture. <laughs> you know that, like, f- do you understand the freedom that that is? We're like, let's go out and, I, first of all, I'm a naked drunk, my shirt's off, oh, I'm not in shape, fuck it. Shirt's gone. Uh, I want you to read my set list just so you know I'm not making this up. And uh, I'll have you, what's your name? Lydia. Oh, I love that. Okay, Lydia, what's my set list say? Greg, Kelly, Zarina, Blind Date, Running through the streets with, I don't know. I just wrote running with the streets from my, with my woe for me. That has nothing to do with the set. <laughs> I love that fucking song so much. Like it's any Uber ride. I'm like, can you plug my phone in? Okay. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll start with Greg. Uh, we'll get to the TV show Blind Date at the end. Uh, I moved to Miami in graduate school. I moved into a hotel complex and I found a roommate uh, named Greg Lamar, who's a Haitian dude. And he's part of the story because Greg was like really good looking, for real. <laughs> I'm a straight dude. Are there any straight dudes in here that have ever seen like a beautiful man? <laughs> yeah, Greg was a beautiful man. When I got married, my wife, when we were looking through our invites, like who the fuck, my wife was looking at my Facebook and she was like, who the fuck is that? <laughs> like, Greg is a gorgeous human. We used to like, before I was married, when I was single and he was single, uh, when I was a middle school teacher and he used to work for Miami, he used to go in the hood and cut people's water off. Like, <laughs> Greg was so good looking, like we would go to the club and girls would come up just be like, excuse me, I never do this. But that's, that's how good looking Greg was. Uh, <laughs> But we met this girl named Kelly at our apartment complex, and Kelly figures in the story because Kelly was a crazy person. Um, I met Kelly at a DUI check stop. <laughs> this again is funny now because this would have been tweeted and like check my Twitter. This is just real time. Uh, we lived in the hood in Miami, and I was sitting behind my soon-to-be friend who I hadn't met yet, and. <laughs> I was with Greg. Greg was smoking a blunt in my Honda Accord. We were next in line to the DUI checkpoint. This is not, this has nothing to do with the story. This is my life. I, I know this sounds like, hey, here's a setup. This is some real shit. Uh, Greg was smoking a blunt, and I'm like, you should put that out, because we're about to go to jail. I am for show. <laughs> and the car in front of us, she had like a Nissan Maxima or something. We see the window rolled down and before the cops even walked over to her car the passenger window let down and I cannot explain this to y'all because I don't have the vocabulary to do it a full wine glass with wine went flying out of the passenger not a plastic Dixie red cup a wine glass has got the circular base the thin stem and a glass went out of the window, just flying out of the window. 
And like you see it in real time and you're like, okay. This probably 2003. We're like, all right, well, this happened. We're on West Dixie Highway in Miami. And it's just fucking, I just saw a red wine glass go flying out of the window. And the cop comes over. He didn't see it. She goes through. And then it's our turn. And we're like, did you not see that shit? So we went through. So she pulls into our apartment complex. Uh, which is called Biscayne Place. If anybody's ever been to Miami, it's, uh, it's not Portofino, but it used to be Biscayne Place. She pulled in, we pulled in, and we were like, we need to be friends. <laughs> and uh, me and this girl, Kelly, and Greg, we were friends. She was the craziest human being. For example, like, uh, God damn, I told him to light me a tent because this story it can go forever. They tried to um, fire everybody that worked in my apartment complex, including me, because we were all smoking incredible amounts of weed. Uh, like I worked at the gym, which is ridiculous, and uh, so they brought in. They were like, like, just like one day, they were like, uh, "No one can go back to work till you take your weed test." So I called Kelly because she used to have a bunch of clean piss because it came out. She did a lot of coke. Uh, she, she did, and I was like, I remember I called her at like nine forty in the morning. I was like, "Hey, I need a clean vial of piss." And if you get that 9.30 in the morning for y'all got that phone call, you'd be like, well, who is this? She was just like, well, come up and get it because I'm not bringing it down. That was like as far as like how mad she got at me. She was like, well, I'm not walking your piss down to you. That's as far, okay. So me, Kelly, and Greg used to go to a lot of strip clubs in Miami. Yeah, for real. This is like when Luke was in his heyday, we were going there getting turned up. A night <laughs> with our city paychecks. Uh, we were going to my uh, Miami strip clubs and partying, and I met this girl named Zarina. And she was like a stripper I met, and it was a completely non sexual relationship. I just like this girl. She's so cool. She started staying at my house. And uh, anybody's ever been sleeping with a stripper, not even sexually, just there in your house a lot, you're like, oh, they have other jobs. <laughs> and I realized that like every couple of days, Zarina was taking about 20 pounds of marijuana up to Tampa Bay. Yeah, in my fucking house. Because one time, she just casually came in the house after like two weeks, because it's like, if y'all were my friends, they'd be like, I need to stay here for three days. I wouldn't give a shit, I wouldn't care. And so she was coming in, and she'd have a roller bag with her, but I'm like, this girl, she's a stripper, maybe she got some fucking heels or some shit. Whatever <laughs> strippers have or don't have, it's not my business. And uh, she opened up her bag one time, and you know how like some of those old ass apartments from the 90s, they had that fucking breakfast nook where's that window where you could see into the kitchen. It's like, oh, this is a nice amenity. It's like, there's just no wall here. <laughs> she just casually opened up her bag one day and was just like casually talking to me like, so, you know, you know, traffic on 95 was just crazy. And, you know, I'm trying to tell my boyfriend he needs it. And just starts putting like pounds of weed on my fucking dinner table and just but just casually talking just chatting it up hey and then my mom called me and she told me my aunt is sick and i'm like i'm never going to see the light of day again like there's just a like 20 pounds of, of weed on my kitchen table and i was like all right serena you can't live with me anymore and she's like okay I think she's had this conversation before. <laughs> you know, where it's just like, I think strippers just like, they, they go and they're like honey badgers, they just wear it, they're welcome, and then they just leave. Uh, she just just did it till I couldn't take the amount of drugs she would have miles and she left. 
But we hung out one last night, and here's where we get to the story. All this was kind of leading to me finishing up graduate school. I went to grad school for biomedical sciences, and uh, yeah, finished, got my degree, and uh, I was finishing up, and we blew it out one night at this one bar, this local bar in Miami called Billy's Pub 2. Billy's Pub was a place for meth head bikers. That's, that's all. I don't know if you guys want any other adjectives. People that do methamphetamines go there to drink Bud Light. I don't know what other description you need for what's happening in there. I remember me and Greg, because I told you Greg was super hot. Uh, Me and Greg used to go to Billy's Pub. Uh, We used to go during during happy hour. They used to have like crazy, like, $2 $2 shots of Jameson and $1 Bud Lights with nothing. And just like, I remember the, the, the junkie uh, bartenders would be so fucked up. I remember one time, like, this girl, she used to love Greg, and she was so fucked up or whatever. She had a mug and was, like, trying to pour a Miller Light for Greg, but she was so fucked up, the, the mug was upside down. So she was just, like, the liquor was pouring over it like a fountain, and she's like, you fucking black guys, I'll take you up right now and fuck you. She was gone. So she wasn't working that night, but we're at Billy's Pub. So me and my other graduate students, we all um, we all finished the night, and um, everybody left. And when I was leaving, the bartender, who was also the owner, goes, "Al, he puts a bottle of Wild Turkey 101 on the bar. Yeah, don't woo that shit." Uh, and he goes, "We're getting rid. We he's like, we can't sell this. We gonna give this away. So do you want to start drinking?" And I'm already fucking fucked up, and I'm like, "Let's go." <laughs> We get so drunk, and this is 10 years before Uber is even an invention. I have to leave my car at the bar. That's how I got drunk I got, uh, which normally isn't a problem, except for the fact that I had to be on the show Blind Date. <laughs> Do you remember that show Blind Date? I went on there, for real. This is not a joke. This is on YouTube. Uh, this is pre I want to be comedy or I want to do stand up this is just I was an asshole living in Florida like they were like do you want to be blind I was like yeah so I got so fucked up the night before my blind date audition I didn't even I just blacked out and forgot that that was a, a word and so I wake up the next morning with my old ass sprint phone and I've got like 29 missed calls from the producer and it's just voicemails going Get your fucking ass down. I'm a fucking kid. We have $30,000 worth of camera equipment. We're going to fucking sue you. And I'm like, oh, shit. So this is Miami. I drive, The date was in South Beach. So I drive down. I'm still fucked. Have y'all? Uh... Thank you. That means so much. I won't continue that. You know how, like, even in the morning, you're almost more fucked up than you were at 11? Okay. Just so y'all not, don't think I'm being cute or trying to tell jokes up here. I get down and I, I'll never forget, I parallel parked uh, right off of Ocean Drive, open the door, just projectile vomit. So probably shouldn't have been driving. Uh, <laughs> close the door, uh, go meet the girl. And uh, she hadn't been drinking. Uh, she was quite ready for the date. And she gets in my face and starts talking on national TV. And she's just like a loud Puerto Rican woman. 
and I love Puerto Rican women, but not when you're hungover at 11.05. Like, she just in my face like, and I told my grandma, I'm going to this date whether she likes it or not. And she better, and I'm like, oh, dear God. And like, here, I don't know if y'all ever, clap you ever seen the show Blind Dates on over? Yeah, okay. Okay, good. So, you know, all right, so like when you watch Blind Date, you know, like, I know y'all gonna go on YouTube this, fuck y'all, fuck y'all, fuck off. Uh, whenever you see like the first episode, like the first segment of Blind Date, like it's just like people in the car talking, it's like usually the guy driving, like so, how's UCLA? Like he's just fucking asking regular questions. And then the second segment, they're in the back seat and there's a driver, and what the reason for that is, is because they get you fucking fucked up. The between the first and second session, like the first session, they're like, do you guys want some eggs? And then at like 12.01, they're like, who's finishing their shot, bitch? Come on, player. That's why like at, by the second segment, everybody's like, bitch, that's why you fucking thighs are fat. It's because they get you so fucking fucked up in between those things, but I didn't drink. So like, as I'm like starting to get my shit together, this girl's coming up and drinks and like trying to yell at me and battle me. And she's like, you're boring, you don't say shit. And I'm like, I can't, so it was raining. In Miami Beach, they made us go to like a personal trainer. It's like, they have us have like an offshoot in case it's raining and you can't do your daytime shit. And we went to like a dominatrix, um, uh, dominatrix slash uh, what do you call it, the personal trainer like she's had the fishnecks and the boots but she's like telling you to do push ups and shit whatever that fucking shit poach. and think about the most hungover you've ever been in your life and then think about somebody hitting you on the ass with a whip like, you know, not the soft whip, but like the hard whip that's like that long and just kind of like, do it, bitch. And I like, I couldn't do it. And the girl's like, come on, pussy. And I was like, give me some Gatorade. I'm gonna knock both of y'all out. Like, it was like, where you're just like, it's not funny anymore. You're like, as soon as I fucking sober up, I'm gonna fucking come after all y'all. I was so fucking fucked up. I couldn't do any push-ups and blind days. Like, this pussy can't do a sit-up. I'm like, I could not move my body. And... <laughs> So we ended the show, and uh, the producers are like, this is how they make TV, by the way, guys. Uh, they come to they like, if it's me and you on the day, they'll like pull you aside and they'll be like, look, Al is really nervous, and he wants to ask you for another date. Um, but he was talking about your huge titties, and you have huge titties. That's why I thought of that. And, <laughs> and like, they're like, the producer would be like, just tell him no, just say no. And so they'll put you aside on your own camera, and you'll be like, Al was okay, but you know he was a little aggressive, so I'm gonna say no to the second date, and then they'll pull me aside, and they'll be like, give me your name again? Lydia. Lydia. And they'll be like, Al, Lydia really likes you. She's nervous. <laughs> She's crying in the other room. She just doesn't think she, you want a second date, so just say you want a second date. And I'll be like, all right. Lydia, I want a second date. Cut to when the shit airs, it's like Lydia's like, fuck Al, and I'm like, I want a second date, and then... <laughs> There you go. The magic of blind date. All right. That's how that shit went down. It's on YouTube and Al Jackson. I've been Al Jackson. I love y'all so much. You guys are the shit. Ah!
I thought he was a decent guy, but I didn't think he was my type. First thing I thought, she was beautiful. I think I would hook him up with my roommate. I really wanted to kiss Anya, but I didn't because I never kissed on the first date. If Albert asked me out on a second date, I would have to say no. I will definitely ask Anya out on the second date. Was it enough to inspire romance? I don't think so. Six weeks ago now, I performed at a storytelling night here in Chicago called Outspoken, which is a new LGBT-focused storytelling night here in the vast Chicago storytelling scene. I was so nervous that night. Even despite the fact I was surrounded by all of my friends, I just was shaking. I think I had two or three glasses of wine before I even got on stage, which is never a good idea for anyone. Sweaty palms... Part of the reason that I was nervous is that this was about things that I had never told in public before. I had definitely told on porches here in Chicago or in one-on-one situations, but I never told them to a room full of 200 people with the subject, uh, my partner, in the room. And some of the stuff that we talk about when it comes to his family, and his family is in China, And his relationship with them is stuff that I had to ask permission from him to tell. A little over three years ago now, I think OkCupid had just introduced the sort of Find Me Now feature, which is pretty similar to like a Grindr or a Tinder or any number of these apps that are out now that... I haven't really used. I had gotten completely drunk with a friend of mine, as I did a lot during that time of my life. It was about 2, 3 in the morning, about the time that you start to get a little interested in maybe having somebody over. And so I go to this feature, and I'm looking at all the people. And at this point, I'm so drunk and so kind of, I'll use the word desperate, that I'm just kind of clicking on everybody, you know, and I'm messaging everybody. I'm copy and pasting a message and just sending it to like over 20 people. (laughs) And it's like basically the same thing, like come over, hang out, let's talk, you know, that thing, right? And I'm being super charming, but kind of annoying. And so I get this guy and he responds to me. And so I'm like, okay, got somebody on the line, right? I got him. I'm going to reel this person in. (laughs) And so I just keep messaging him. And meanwhile, my friend is sitting there continuing to drink and we're hanging out. And he agrees to finally come over. So friend passes out, and I'll never forget, Joe, he shows up. I see this small, quiet-looking Chinese boy wearing bright white pants and a black-and-white striped shirt, T-shirt, in the middle of winter, and just got this smile on his face. All teeth and, like, cute little round cheeks and, and he's so tiny and so adorable in that truest sense of that word, but so unlike any other person I had been with up to that point. And you could tell that he's like wasted, <laughs> he's, but he's really quiet and really timid. And so I invite him in and we talked and nothing really happened that night. I think we might have made out a little bit, but I distinctly remember looking him in the eye and saying, you are trouble. You're going to be trouble. And uh, the next morning I woke up and I remember one of the things that I texted him on OkCupid was that if you come over, I'll make you breakfast. So I made him breakfast and he left. 
and kind of just courted for a while. And so that is the difference, I think, between the past relationships and this one. It was the first one where it felt like, okay, I found somebody who is in many ways the exact opposite of me. So he slowed me down. He sort of put the brakes on and he forced me to kind of question a lot of the things that I did, a lot of the stuff that I've done and a lot of the behaviors that I have. And that's how it sort of all began. And then at some point, I think it was about a year into our relationship, he went home to China, as he does every year, and he came out to his family. His mom was very, very upset. We got really depressed, threatened to kill herself if he didn't break up with me. Uh, And so then there was another phase where he said he broke up with me. So at some point, we decided that we were going to get married. We made this sort of life plan together after we talked about the milestones of having a kid, getting married, all the things that you discuss as a couple. But for somebody like me who's incredibly anxious, the idea of proposing caused me such anxiety that I said, you have to propose because I can't do this. Just like the very thought of proposing to him made me just as anxious as I was when I was introduced at Outspoken that night in Boys Town in Chicago. (laughs) There are moments in life when what happens to our loved ones is completely out of our control. I have a mass on my spinal cord, he told me over the phone while I was at work at WBEZ. A mass? Does that mean like cancer or what? He said, I don't know, I can't really read this report. Now he does come from China and English is his second language, but most of us in this room, unless you're a doctor, probably can't read medical reports. So I went home immediately and a lot of people in situations like these would go into sort of a panic mode appeal to the emotion of the situation, hear that word cancer and mass, and get freaked out, and be entirely unhelpful. I have anxiety. I'm putting my hands behind my back to remain calm. (laughs) And uh, what I do to create order in my life is I make lists. Lists are very calming to me. And so I went into caregiver mode almost immediately. I went and I looked for the top surgeons in the city, I sent the MRI results in. What they do is you send them in and then they call you back on their terms. So the next day we got like two calls almost immediately. Yeah, you gotta come in. We made an appointment at Rush Hospital, one of the great neurosurgical institutions in the country. And we went into a room and I spent like 30 minutes yesterday trying to think of like a pop culture reference for this nurse to try to describe her for you. And I typed hot movie nurse, hot TV nurse. Let's just say she was hot and blonde. The doctor, on the other hand, we did not struggle with a pop culture reference. He was McDreamy. He walked in and he, Harvard educated, hotter than hell, and he knew exactly what he was doing. He said, you have a tumor in your spinal cord, it needs to come out. We do minimally invasive spinal cord surgeries here. We do them a lot, and we do them very well. We make a small incision, we cut out the tumor, we seal you back up, you recover for six to eight weeks, and that's it. So, (laughs) we made an appointment, and I think now at this point, it was thinking back, probably only because of how hot he was. uh, But there was just something about him that instilled a confidence in us to... 
Say yes. Um, so the next day, I was uh, at work, and I got another call from one of the hospitals. This was Northwestern, which was higher ranked than Rush. Um, and this guy in particular was an expert in spinal cord deformity reconstructions. So we figured, okay, it's like two blocks from where we live, downtown right now, and he knows the area pretty well. We'll give him a shot. And the doctor came in. His name was Tyler Kosky. had my first name, so that was a good sign. And he was completely disheveled. He had, like, a surgical hat still on. Uh, he had all of his fatigues on, no Armani suit or anything like that. And he had a computer, and he said, has anybody showed you this MRI? And we sort of both looked at each other and said, no, actually, we haven't seen it yet. We've seen the text, but not the image. So he brings his computer down, and he, he clicks a, a box in the corner. I'll never forget. It was The Hobbit. He was watching The Hobbit. <laughs> And I'm like, you could talk now, but I'm sold. But he, he talked, <laughs> talked for another, like, 45 minutes to an hour about everything that could go wrong in this situation. It was the first time I heard the word paralysis. It was the first time I heard the word cancer. Um, and it was his opinion that the surgery should not be minimally invasive, that instead it should be open. And so instead of making a small incision on the neck, you make a much larger incision and you open the entire neck. Um, his justification for this was that my partner is about 105 pounds, uh, is very skinny, and so there's not a whole lot of room to work. And it was pushing so hard against the spinal cord that he didn't want to risk it. So we did what any uh, gay couple in distress does in a situation like this, and we went to uh, Crate and Barrel. <laughs> we walked around uh, for like 30, 45 minutes and just looked at shit <laughs> um, and then just sort of looked at each other and we're like yeah let's let's go with that guy uh, it seemed like the right thing to do so it's the day of the surgery and there are moments in life when what happens to our loved ones is entirely out of our control I don't know if any of you have had a moment where you had a loved one go to a major operation where he's probably going to live, but you don't necessarily know something horrible could happen. And there's that moment where they take the person away on the gurney, and you sort of play that moment. I still do it back in your mind because you want to do it better. You want to do something else. You want to hug them or kiss them or squeeze their hand or do something. But it sort of just happens very objectively and fast, and then they're gone, and they're not in your hands anymore. So they told me the surgery was supposed to be four hours, which is, in my mind, a long time. And I went to the waiting room at Northwestern, which contains, I don't know, probably 100 different people, all different levels of extreme situations. There are TVs that have numbers and statuses. So I'm looking at that number, and then there's two volunteers at a desk with two phones. Those phones go to the operating rooms. You get updates periodically. So four hours. I've got amazing friends. My friend Andrew stopped by, brought snacks. He's been through multiple surgeries. Stayed with me for two, three hours. My friend Chris from college came. We hung out for a little bit. And then hour four came along, and I hadn't received any updates. My friend Amber showed up, and I asked her to sit down and wait for a second because I was going to try to get to figure out what was going on. So I called the operating room, and uh, she said, everything is fine, but we had a little bit of a delay. Now, in a situation like that, of course, I'm like, a delay? What do you mean? Is he going to die? What's happening? She of course, is not going to tell me anything other than we had a little bit of a delay. We'll call you back. So at this point, five hours, 
six hours. People are leaving the waiting room. Like, there were 100 people there before. Maybe there's 20. Seven hours. There's me, Amber, talking to each other about nothing. And this other family that had been there all day. And I will never forget this family. I don't know what was going on, uh, but it was sudden, I could tell, and very, very grim. And so they were having a sort of a prayer circle, and I was with my friend. At hour eight, uh, Dr. Tyler Kosky busts through the operating room door, and I will never forget his face. If you watched Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi in their heyday, didn't like Pete Sampras, by the way. I was an Agassi guy. But when Pete won, he always had this look on his face like he was fucking exhausted. But then he'd get this little smirk. <laughs> like, I did it, you know? And that's exactly what Dr. Kosky's face looked like. He came up to me and explained what happened. He said, when you called at hour four, the tumor was connected to a big nerve for movement and for sensation. So he had peeled away each fiber of the tumor for movement, successfully at hour four. And then he did most of the one for sensation, so as expected. And then there was a little tiny piece of tumor still attached to the nerve. And he said, I looked at it and I had to decide. And I heard that word tumor, very unsettling. And he said we could either cut it and risk that he would Never feel his hand again, or do radiation. And I said, radiation, so is it cancer? And he said, well, we flash froze the sample in the operating room, and there's a 95% chance that it is not cancer. We will know for sure in a month, but there's a very good chance. <sighs> Big sigh of relief, right? I said, so what did you do? And he said, I snipped it. And I, you know, I do the moth, as um, Art said, and I hear a lot of stories, and I need to hear more stories of surgeons, because that moment, that decision, I have no idea. And uh, so I thanked him. <laughs> I didn't know what else to do. Thanks, Doc. And uh, he sent me up to the ICU, where Joe was recovering, and he was higher than a kite. <laughs> like, morphine times 100. <laughs> And he was awake, and uh, I walked up to him, and I grabbed his hand, and I squeezed it, and I said, honey, can you feel that? And he said, yes, why? <laughs> and uh, I said, no, nah, you'll just find out tomorrow. <laughs> just <laughs> turn around, <laughs> let Amber sort of deal with that moment, so. My friend Don, uh, who had a moment before I came on stage, um, has this theory about stories where he says that if you're the hero when you've finished your story, then you should write it again. The hero of this story is not me. The hero of this story is my partner, who, mm, who went through this process of surgery, which is not why I'm getting emotional. That was tough, and he did it, and I'm proud of him. Part of the story that I didn't tell you was that he came out to his parents, who are from China, uh, two years before this. They did not handle it well. One of the bargaining chips for his mother was that we had to break up, um, or she was going to kill herself. Now, we don't know if that was serious or not, but you got to take that seriously. So we sort of told her that that was what we were going to do, and 
they Skype every week and I would go to the corner and sort of hide away and it just happened that way for a year and gave him his time. This last winter he went back to China and came out again to his family and told them about the surgery, told them that I had been living with him this whole time and that I was the one that was taking care of him. About a month ago, um, I was sitting on the couch watching Oz, and uh, he is on the phone or on the, on the iPad with his mom, and I'm sitting there next to him, closer than I've ever sat when he's been in conversation with her, and he turns the iPad over to me, and his mom is there. And through translation, he said that she said that she was very proud of me and thanked me for taking care of her son on behalf of their whole family. So, tomorrow morning, you can't write this, we are going to sign on our new home in Edgewater that is um, big enough for a little baby and uh, hopefully a mother from the East. Thank you. Wow. That was beautiful. Someone makes us cry every damn month. (laughs) That was wonderful. Um, Oh my gosh, yes! Come! (laughs) I never thought I would cry, but I did. By the way, I could read that report, okay? I speak English. Um, I, 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 I came up here, it's because we, uh, we're going to get married this October, but he said, you're going to propose, and I never did, so Tyler James Green, will you marry me? Well, this is just a simple song To say what you've done I told you about all those fears And the way they did run You sure must be strong Like 
This week's episode, folks, this is the shins behind me. That was Tyler Green, who we just heard, and his fiance Joe. You can only imagine how jealous I am of Tyler. Folks, if you live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, we are there on July 17th. That's this Friday. And then next Thursday, July 23rd, Risk is in New York, as usual. And in Los Angeles, it's always the same night, the fourth Thursday of every month in Risk, in in Risk, in uh, New York and Los Angeles. And we're also doing a storytelling workshop in Reno, Nevada on the 25th. Of July, as well as a show in Reno on the 25th. Check our tour page, risk-show.com slash tour, for information about those shows and workshops. Speaking of storytelling workshops, don't forget we are in the process of publishing this incredibly exciting intro to storytelling, Wow Your Crowd, video lecture series online. You can take it in your own time. You've got a workbook to work with. You've got over two hours of video lectures, sample stories, annotated stories that are classics from Risk. It's truly the most complete, the most practical, the most affordable way to get great storytelling tips and practice. It's called Intro to Storytelling, Wow Your Crowd. The instructor is me, Kevin Allison. It will be available at Udemy and also at thestorystudio.org. If you have any trouble finding it this week, because it's just going up right now, just write to me at kevin at risk-show.com. If you love Risk, one of the best things you can do for us is to convert new listeners. Spread the word. Tell your friends that we're at risk-show.com. Tell them how to download episodes on iTunes. Tell them we're on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show. Tell them that episodes like The Best of Risk number 8 and The Best of Risk number 4 are great ways to start. And finally, tell them Today's the day. <laughs> Take a risk.
standing in front of a room full of 200 people like I was uh, that night at Outspoken in Boys Town, Chicago, I.L. <laughs> Chicago, I.L. That was dumb. I'm going to go back and do that again. <laughs> 60611. <laughs> oh, shit. Chicago, I.L. <laughs> I've never... <laughs> We've fallen off the rail. I've never said that before, nor have I ever heard anybody refer to it as that. I haven't either. That's great. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm going to try that one more time. <laughs> But, but that crap. was good. That was good. You can do that again. We can use that as the Easter egg. 